Today is, as we all know, Christmas Eve. Some of you like hearing me say this kind of thing. Some of you might kind of like turn your head sideways, like what? But above all, right, today is the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day. 52 days a year, we reflect on what we're reflecting on this morning, on the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Every single Sunday is a celebration that God took on flesh. Every Sunday is a celebration that Christ died and that he rose again. And I don't say that to diminish your, your Christmas spirit this morning. Quite the opposite. It is quite the opposite. I say it so that you'll begin, if you haven't already, to see the beauty of the gift that we have in the Lord's Day every Sunday. We get a huge holiday every week. One day in seven where we celebrate the birth, the life, the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Savior. It's a time every Sunday for feasting and gathering family and friends. A time each week about putting the past behind us, getting a fresh start as we move forward in hope and great expectation because we know Christ has come. We do celebrate his birth today, specifically, right? We're singing about it. We're talking about it. I'm preaching about it from the Gospel of Matthew the miracle of Jesus' birth. Not just a miracle because he was born of a virgin, but a miracle that God loved us enough to enter into time and space itself and to take on creatureliness in order to save us. He became like us. He came to be with us. And here's the deal that has consequences. That has consequences. God coming into the world, being born of the flesh, has consequences. The world would never be the same. The world was never the same. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So we're reading Matthew chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 18. We'll read through chapter 2, verse 16. So now let's turn our attention to God and his word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that the men saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we we thank you for your word. I pray, God, that it would grow more precious in our sight, that we would find you here, Lord, that right now in this hour that you, would, that you would meet us here, that you would allow me to speak the truth of your word to your hearers, that they would know their shepherd's voice and follow you. God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I said, I said already before we read there that God with us has consequences. Jesus being born into the world has consequences. And so that's, that's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Here's three points for you. Jesus being born a man means God's presence was coming into the world. It means that God's salvation was coming into the world. And it means that God's kingdom was coming into the world. Jesus being born a man brought God's presence, God's salvation, and God's kingdom into the world. So first, first point, Jesus' birth meant God's presence was coming into the world. Chapter 1, verse 23 there says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that was the call to worship at the beginning of the service this morning too, right? God with us. So question, as we get started here, hasn't God always been with us? 
Hasn't he always been with his people? Was there ever a time when he wasn't? I mean, when, when he parted the Red Sea, when, when he dwelt with his people in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, when he dwelt with them in, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, when he fought Israel's battles for them when they were taking the promised land, wasn't God with his people then? Hasn't he always been? Not like this. Not like this. God with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. Clearly a significant event. Significant enough that even pagans took notice. They thought it was special. We see in the beginning of chapter 2, the wise men come from the east. And not three, and not three kings. I know that's how the song goes. That's just not what it says, right? And I, I think the reason we, we get that idea of, of three is the three gifts, right? The frankincense, the, the gold, and the myrrh. We know there was more than one, don't we? And in actuality, there's probably more than three. And these guys, these wise men, they were like astrologists, okay, students of the stars, worshipers of the stars. They, they would have looked to the, the stars and the heavens for signs from the divine. And it says they were from the east, probably from Babylon, which at that time was like the center of civilization. And there probably would have been a, a, a large number of Jews still remaining there from the Babylonian captivity. Okay, remember in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of, of Judah fell. Okay? And they were deported. The Jews there were deported to Babylon. And when you think about uh, Daniel in the time of his writing, when you think about the Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, all those stories, that's, that's where they were when all of that was happening. And then about 70 years later, the Jews in Babylon were allowed to return to Judah. And a lot of them did, but most of them didn't. And, and then later, some more came, but not all of them. So fast forward now to this scene 500 years later at Jesus' birth. These wise men, they come all the way to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Well, where'd they get that idea? Obviously from some Jews they know, right? Maybe they were mixing their star search religion with what they heard the Jews talk about and knew that this star was significant. And regardless, they believed there was something, something really significant about the star. So much so that they traveled about 500 miles to come see this king of the Jews and to worship him. You know, whatever the star was, a great comet or something, doesn't really matter. It's not really important, but what it signified is, and God who made the stars and orchestrates not just supernatural events, but things as natural as rain, preordained this star to shine over Bethlehem as a herald announcing to the world, Jew and Gentile alike, the promised one has come. That promised deliverer has come. God announced his presence in the world 
And the natural reaction should be to worship him. That should be our reaction. That's a right response. Pagan wise men recognized him and desired to worship him. Really capture the significance of that for a minute. There are a lot of people today, people who would call themselves religious, who, who, who deny Christ's divinity, that he was truly God in the flesh. The, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they even changed the wording of this verse in their translation of the Bible to avoid that implication. Instead of to worship him, like it says there, it says to do obeisance to him, to show respect. That's all Jesus is worth, right? A little bow, a little curtsy. Yeah, he's important, but he's not God. Yes, he is. God in the flesh. God with us. The presence of God in the world commands more than just respect. It commands worship. Complete devotion, praise, honor, and submission to him. God's presence coming in the world is good news because it's his presence we lost. That's what was lost in the garden. Not just a loss of innocence. We lost God's presence with us. We lost what it really meant to be human when we lost union with the one who made us on his own image for the purpose of having union with him. That's what we lost. And God could have left us that way. He could have left us that way, left us alone to destroy ourselves and to become more like beasts than men. But God, in his great love and mercy toward us, said, I'm coming down there. And not as God, but as God and man born into the creation he made the way we all are. God clothed himself with man so he could clothe man with himself and restore to him what was lost. And what we lost was God himself. That's what was forfeited. Union and relationship with the God who made us. God with us is what was forfeited in the garden and God with us is what was restored to us in the manger. Because as we all know, he didn't stay a baby. That baby grew up and went to the cross to reconcile men to God by dying for the sin that caused the separation in the first place. That's the next point. God's salvation was coming into the world. Chapter 1, verse 21. So she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. What is it about his name that's tied to salvation? D doesn't the angel the Lord sent uh, to, to visit Joseph, doesn't, doesn't he seem to make a connection there? You shall call him Jesus for, because, he will save his people from their sins. Now, our English translation uh, of the New Testament is coming from the Greek, Iesus. Well, we would say Jesus, right? But it's a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which we would say Joshua. And the name means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. 
You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Name him that, because that's what he's going to do. See? And then look at the very next verse. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yahweh saves. Yahweh with us. Yahweh is coming to save. God's salvation was coming into the world. He was coming into the world and he was going to save his people from their sins. So we have a particular people, don't we? Which, which people? His people. Which are his people? Those the Father elected before the foundation of the world. That's who Jesus came into the world to save. And I realize that that rubs some folks the wrong way, that Jesus died for some and not all, but it is scriptural. And, and, y'all, you wouldn't want it any other way. You wouldn't want it any other way. I'm not just bringing up the, the doctrine of predestination here to sharpen everyone's theological pencils, okay? I bring it up because you'll miss the beauty of what the Lord accomplished what he set out to do, what he intended to do when he took on that flesh and was born a baby in a manger. You'll miss the beauty of it if you don't get this. Because look, if he only died to make salvation possible, then none of us would have taken him up on the offer. But we didn't have to. He chose us. Chose us before the foundation of the world predestined us not according to any good that can be found in us, but according to his will. That's found in Ephesians 1, if you're wondering. And not only that, not only if he had merely made salvation possible, our fallen wills wouldn't have chosen him, but if he only died to make salvation possible and not effective for specific people, he didn't really save anyone. We wouldn't want that. His sacrifice wasn't made effectual for anyone in particular. That means his his birth and his blood would have been a gamble. But the blood of Jesus actually saves those he intends to save. That is good news. That's the Savior we need. That's what his name means, for he will save his people from their sins. He came and accomplished what he was sent to do. If you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins this morning, you can know that that baby that came into the world came not just generally, not just in the hope that some might receive him, but came for you. Took on flesh and died for you. When Jesus was born, God's salvation was coming into the world, and it was coming into the world with a people in mind. When Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, he says, his sheep know him, right? He says, I know my own, and my own know me. He says to those questioning him, he says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He doesn't say you are not my sheep because you don't believe. You don't believe because you are not my sheep. It's not belief That's a prerequisite for being a sheep. Being one of Christ's sheep is a prerequisite of belief. 
You can't believe in him if you are not his sheep. He knows his own and his own know him. And they recognize their shepherd's voice. God's salvation coming into the world. He was coming for those God the Father had already called his own. That's who he sent his son to save. Jesus says praying to the Father in, uh, in John chapter 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. He says, I'm not praying for them. I'm not, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for them, those who are yours, those that you gave me. I give eternal life to those, those that you have given me. Jesus was born into the world to save his people from their sin. Are you uh, his people? Do you hear your shepherd's voice and do you follow? God with us, the incarnation, Jesus' birth that we're celebrating meant God's salvation was coming into the world and his name is Jesus. That's the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. In the name of Jesus. He was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. God promised our first parents that a deliverer would be born of the seed of the woman and that he would conquer Satan and remove the curse. But here's the thing. Put, put all this together. The curse was man's curse, wasn't it? It was a curse on man. And the curse for man is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, right? Our first parents were told, don't eat from that tree. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And death entered the world when they did. Rather than living forever, they would return to the dust that they were taken from. So look, if we're going to understand how important it is that Jesus was born in a major and why that's worth celebrating, we have to remember that in order for the deliverer to reverse that curse of sin that was put on man, he would have to suffer death as a man, and in order to do it, he would have to be born a man. Born to die as the sacrifice we needed in order to be saved. Jesus, being born a man, God with us, means God's salvation was coming into the world, and God's salvation coming into the world is good news because we're all born under man's curse and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't save ourselves, much less anyone else. But God, in his grace and his mercy toward us, gave us his son, who was born a man, to obey God perfectly where we failed to, and to die in our place as if he failed to. So that he would be crushed and we would be forgiven. So that he would take the wrath of God due for our sin and we would be seen as righteous and blameless in God's sight. When you open your presence tomorrow morning, and they're all just laying there at the base of the tree. I want you to consider the gift God gave you at a tree. The gift of salvation. Adam, the first man, disobeyed God at a tree. Jesus Christ, the second and better Adam, obeyed God on a tree. And it brought the gift of God's salvation. The gift of eternal life lies there at the foot of the cross. 
And there'll be a tree in the celestial city too, a tree of life. And we're told it will be decorated with 12 kinds of fruit that we can come and eat from freely. And that is made possible for us because Christ was born a man to die for sin. Merry Christmas. But there's more to the story. There's another consequence of God with us. Another consequence of God taking on flesh that we see start to manifest in this passage. God's kingdom was coming into the world. Jesus was born into the world to save his people from their sin, but he was also born into the world to take everything back that was rightfully his. When Jesus was born, he was born king. He was born in order to have rule and authority over all creation as both God and man. The world was given to man to rule over with the authority that was given to him by God. We threw in the towel on that project. Adam messed that up. He was supposed to have dominion in the earth. A man was supposed to have that. God didn't give up on his vision for man. We always have to remind ourselves that Jesus is interested in more than just saving us. I know that's our favorite part. That's our favorite part. But the mission was bigger. The first Adam was made with a purpose and God didn't give up on that purpose. Just because Adam failed doesn't mean God lost interest in the creature he made in his own image doing the thing that he made him to do. If you were in our men's Bible study this past fall, you know that we observed that God gave Adam a will to obey, he gave him a work to do, and he gave him a woman to love. And there's not one of those things that Jesus does not do perfectly. The will God gave man to obey was his own. Adam wasn't supposed to obey his own will. He was supposed to obey God's will. Adam didn't. Jesus did. God gave Adam a work to do, to work and to keep the garden, to fill the earth with his image bearers and to subdue it, to have dominion in it. He failed. Jesus doesn't. God gave Adam a woman to love, to love as his own flesh and to guide in the way of righteousness given to him by God. He didn't. And she slipped. And Adam blamed his bride. Jesus took the blame for his bride and died in order to save her. The incarnation, Jesus' birth, the significance of God with us is absolutely about salvation but it's not just about rescuing us, it's about the restoration of all things. He comes not just with the ability to save, but the authority to rule and have dominion. As God, yes, always, but as man. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, it says uh, chapter two, verse six. And what I want you to take notice of here is that's good news for some and bad news for others, right? That's good news for some, bad news for others. If you're in charge and you think you're under control, you've got everything under control, you're not so enthusiastic about someone coming in and taking over. If you're the one who has been ruling, what do you think when someone shows up with a claim that those people that you're ruling, they're not really yours, they're mine, and now you need to slide over? 
One of the things we see here in this passage about Jesus' birth and one of the consequences of God with us is that his kingdom was coming into the world and evil kings felt threatened. That's no surprise. They were warned in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we see the father tell the son, the nations will be his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. And then it says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest ye perish, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Christ's legitimate rule coming into the earth, his kingdom breaking in, has consequences for earthly kings and kingdoms. Herod felt threatened. Some people's reaction was to worship Jesus when they heard the news. Herod's was to kill him. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Think about that for just a second, because we read this stuff, y'all. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the movies and the music that we listen to. We just get so desensitized to this. Did you read that? The bloodshed, the wailing mothers with their children stripped from their arms and slaughtered by the order of the king. Herod starts out telling the wise men that he wants to know where the child is so he too can come and worship him, but that's not his intention at all. And when the wise men don't come back to tell him, he's stuck with the feeling that there's this child out there who's been born king with rights greater than his own with a more legitimate claim than his, and he feels threatened. He knows whatever authority he's had up till now has an expiration date and the clock is ticking. He had to have sat with that feeling at least a little while because by the time he decides he can't take it anymore, he has to kill every child up to two years of age in order to extinguish the one he knows is a threat. And he's willing to do that He's willing to go to that length and that extreme because that's how sinful self-preservation works. Those who reject Jesus always believe they have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Herod was feeling that. He didn't want to feel it anymore. He tried to eliminate the threat. Remember part of the curse... Um, it, it, in the garden, after the fall, right? God says, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? So not only did earthly kings recognize the rightful authority of Jesus over the earth, so did Satan. He knew what this meant. And he tried the same thing before in Exodus, right? When the Pharaoh started killing all the, all the male children born of the Hebrew women, God bringing his kingdom into the world is a threat to every evil empire and the one behind every evil empire, Satan himself. I told you the world would never be the same. 
When we proclaim the gospel, we're proclaiming the good news about the lordship of Christ over all the earth, over every rule and every authority. Everything that earthly rulers, judges, and kings hold with a white-knuckle grip and lay stake and claim to, Jesus says, let go. Stop playing. That's, that's mine. That, that belongs to me. Just hand it over now. The message of the gospel is not offensive to people because we say he's our king. Nobody cares. If the gospel stops there, people say, good for you. How nice. I'm glad you found something that, that works for you. The message of the gospel, the good news of Christ's kingdom coming into the world says, no, he's your king too. And you're living in a rebellion against him. I don't want that for you. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel says, no, he's your king too. He's your king too, Caesar. Christians got beheaded and fed to lions for that kind of talk in the early church. You know, worship whatever God you want, but don't you dare say he has more authority than the law of the land. Governments are funny that way. But praise God for bold and dangerous men who behead and topple over satanic statues in state houses, declaring the crown rights of King Jesus. Some of you may have heard about that in the past week or so. Maybe some of you have opinions about it. Was that childish? Or was it bold? Well, let's not you and I be the judge. Let's ask God what he thinks about toppling over idols that blaspheme his name who came to redeem the earth. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom coming into the world says, bend the knee. That's what it says. Bend the knee. Kiss the sun, lest you perish. He is king of all. It's his air that you're breathing. It's his earth that you're walking on. It's his image that you bear. The call of the gospel is a command. You're rebelling against the king of the universe. Stop it. Repent and believe. Or be crushed. And people say, well, that doesn't sound like good news. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's bad news for some, sure. For those who refuse him and continue in their rebellion against him, they will be destroyed. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Those who run to him, who turn from their sin and turn to Christ, they live. Those who run to him, rest secure. God's kingdom coming into the world is good news because the world is a mess and we know it. Don't we? Does that surprise anyone here? We should meet afterwards and have a conversation about that. The world's a mess and we know it. And we're unable to save ourselves and unable to rule ourselves. Isn't that obvious? As much as we want to all be our own little gods, we can't rule of ourselves, much less anyone else, can we? Don't we need a righteous king who will rule over us and defend us? Who we know not only can, but will conquer evil. Who will conquer 
all his and our enemies. Don't we need to be in submission to a king like that? Christ, this newborn king we find in these verses this morning, born of a virgin, God with us, God in the flesh, whose name is Jesus because he brings salvation to his people, also brings his justice, his mercy, and his peace. Joy to the world. Are we doing that one, ladies? It would have been a good one. Joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He brings salvation to his people. He brings his justice, mercy, and peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 9. He is reconciling all things to himself, Colossians 1, and making peace by the blood of his cross. Behold, all things are being made new. That's good news. God with us is good news because it has consequences. It means his presence with us. We lost it. God gave it. And so we get him. God with us means God's salvation coming into the world, that the curse of man would fall on the only righteous man so that man could be freed from that curse and have the righteousness of God. God gave the first man, Adam, righteousness. We lost it. God gave it, and so we get him and the benefits that belong to the righteous. And God with us means God's kingdom coming into the world, that every dark power will be chased out and every evil empire will fall because Christ isn't in a manger anymore. He is on his throne. And the world will be ruled with righteousness and renewed by his goodness and power. We lost it. God gave it. And so the righteous shall inherit the earth. The Christmas story of Jesus' birth isn't special because it's a sweet miracle we all marvel at and celebrate. It's special, and we celebrate it, y'all, because of its consequences. We lost it all. God gave it all. We get it all. That's the gospel. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.